following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Oh, wow. The word of God for the people of God. It's interesting. It's interesting here. What a passage. How, what are we going to do here today? Well, um, before we jump into that, we, um, if you're new to Sacred City, you're wondering what just happened, okay? We preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We've been going through the book of Ezra for a number of months now. Uh, this is the home stretch. And so I'm gonna, we're going to move into explaining what all these names are about. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, but this is sort of par for the course. Sometimes you get these home runs. Scriptures are like, for God so loved the world. And crack, you know, it's like, see ya. And other days you get literally hundreds of names. And so um, that's one of these days. We are, like I said, at the end of our saga through the book of Ezra. Um, we will pick up the book of Nehemiah in the fall, sometime in September, I think mid-September. Um, but in the interim period here, as we wrap up Ezra, waiting for Nehemiah to unfold, we have a couple of mini-series lined up here throughout uh, the spring into the summer that I'm, I'm really excited about. We've got uh, some time in the Psalms that we're going to spend about six weeks there. Um, we'll, we'll come back around in the fall to do a DNA series about why we are the way that we are, our identities, our rhythms, our core values here at Sacred City Church. But for the next five weeks, we're going to be doing a series called Cruciform. Um, I'm really excited about this series, Cruciform. It, the, the tagline is um, giving life by dying. The, the, it's, it's asking the question of what does the life of a disciple look like? And, and as we go into that question, what we're doing, we're envisioning um, this cross-shaped life. How does Jesus, how does the cross of Christ inform every aspect of our life. And in fact, this is the call on every Jesus follower to ask this question and to move into that. And what we find the way that Jesus calls us to live is a life of dying to give life. And so I'm really excited about that. Uh, I hope you join us for this. But first, we got to deal with all these names uh, in the book of Ezra. And so would you join me in praying uh, as we ask the Lord to speak to his people today? Father, we thank you uh, that you are not a God who is mute. You are a God who speaks. And you tell us everything that we need to know to worship you rightly, to live a life of godliness and of purity, to know uh, where to go to to find the remission and forgiveness of our sins. And this morning we come to your word once again, and it's, it's, it's a, an unusual passage and so would you work in, in an even more powerful and supernaturally mobilized way to, to help me to think your thoughts, to speak your words, that my heart would be filled for, uh, with, with affections for your church in a way that serves and leads us into the good life. I pray, um, God, that you would speak clearly, um, that, that we would have some real practical things uh, to give ourselves to as we walk out, but more importantly, that we would get a vision, uh, get a glimpse of Jesus, our Savior, this morning. Would you teach us his ways? Would you teach us how to walk in them, how to honor him, um, and how to be people of the Lord? Um, we ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, why the names? 
Ezra chapter 10 closes out this long story. It's a great story. It's an epic story. Why close out the whole book of Ezra with a list of 100 names? And then the other question is, why read them? Why would, why would I make poor Kathy get up here and read through all of those names? Now, partly for entertainment, I have to admit, I was like, can she do it? Maybe, we'll see. She did it. And, and honestly, even if she didn't know, do, do it, I don't know any better because I don't know how to pronounce these. Um, so part of it is, yeah, for a little bit of entertainment, but, but the real thing is here, um, the Lord is communicating something to us in this passage. These names are a, a crucial piece of understanding the big picture of the book of Ezra. As, as we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible like this, it's, it's easy for us to sort of get so narrowed in on, on one particular passage, one little snippet of the story, that we sort of lose the forest through the trees. And so today, what I want to do is zoom out a little bit, um, offer us a bit of a recap of the whole story of Ezra, and show how these names, how these people tie in. What's the point of them? And as we do this, I hope to show you, I hope to shed light on the parallel between the story of Ezra and these individuals that are named and what the church is for now and how we as individuals live into the mission that God has before us. Now, this whole series of Ezra, we've been calling it Rebuilding the Ruins. Um, we've called that that because ruins is where the story begins. You open up to chapter one of Ezra and there's already a backstory that's going on. The, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple, the, the, which was believed to be the center of the universe, was ransacked. The, the walls were torn down. This beautiful piece of architecture that for years and years that God had literally given David a blueprint, a dream for this, and then his son Solomon built it through the, the, the working, the, the generous donations of the people of Israel. They built this beautiful place for God's presence to come down and dwell right there in the center of the city. And now we see this temple destroyed. But it's not just a physical destruction that we see when we enter into the streets of Jerusalem. It's a societal brokenness. It's, it's a city that lies in waste. Life is broken. The rhythms are disrupted. So much so that the bulk of God's people who were residing in Jerusalem have been exiled. They've been extracted from the city of God, the city of David, and taken away into a pagan city called Babylon. Now for the Jews, for those who loved God, those who served God, this would have been a very hard and disorienting existence. Total disruption. The world flipped upside down, almost as if they're aliens on earth. Now this is not far from what it feels like to be a Christian in mainstream society, mainstream culture today. From our view, from, from what we know about a good God who created the world to be good and beautiful, to flourish and grow and develop, we look at it and we see brokenness. We don't see the flourishing. We don't see the, the um, continual development and beautification that was meant to happen. That, that what God envisioned when he gave Adam and Eve the, the, uh, the commission to go fill the earth and subdue it, to make it, to tend to the garden and make it beautiful. Instead, what we see is a lot of ruins, brokenness. 
Now, as we sit here in Moline, we, our, our city's not in ruins. We have a pretty beautiful city for the most part. If you, if you overlook some of the potholes, which by the way, I don't know if you saw this, in the alleyway, they tried to do something about it. So there's progress. But, but if you take the physical nature of our city out of the equation, you can see how very much so the city is crippled, that there is brokenness that has plagued this city and far beyond, not just our city, but the whole world. Relational brokenness, you see this disconnect between um, the, the, the vision of, of flourishing, human flourishing, uh, mentally, spiritually, physically, all kinds of things that are going on that don't really line up with what God had intended this world to be. But this brokenness is nothing new. The brokenness that we experience today, the stuff that makes you, you see it, you, you look out. I mean, whether it's, I think there was, uh, I know there was, I saw the news report this morning, there was a shooting in, in New York, Buffalo, that just makes your heart twist and say, this is not how it was meant to be. The world is broken. There's all kinds of ailments that are going on. But we are told, the Bible tells us, this is nothing new. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John says, the earth is passing away. He's acknowledging the fact that there's this, this decay, this, this state of ruins that the world is in. It's passing away. Now, all of the societal, the cultural issues that we experience, that we brush up against, are downstream of the bigger issue. All of these issues flow from the headwaters of spiritual brokenness, of some sort of spiritual decay. And this is true even of the city of Jerusalem. As we see when we open up the book of Ezra, the reason why God's people have been exiled is because they have been unfaithful to God. They have forsaken his ways. They've forsaken his commandments. They've turned and done life their own way. They've given themselves to idol worship, to, to bowing down to pagan gods. The whole reason Jerusalem has ended up in ruins both physically and spiritually and socially is because of rebellion, spiritual brokenness, spiritual veering away from God. Now this, this imagery that we see of a city, the walls toppled, city life destroyed, it's a potent imagery of the consequences of sin. We're told in Romans that the wages of sin is, is death. And it's not just for us individually speaking, but the fact that the whole world is perishing. Everything is moving on this downward spiral because of sin and the infection that it has in this world. Now, God, God could have turned us over. He could have turned his people over to their own folly, their own foolishness, the futility of life on their own terms. He said, hey, if you want to give yourself to sin, if you want to bow down to, to pagan gods, to idols, you, you can go ahead and do that. It's not going to go well for you. He could have said to us, you made your bed, now go, go lie in it. But the God of the Bible, of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is a gracious God. He's a compassionate God. He's a promise-keeping God. And this God is the God of redemption. He's a God who looks at brokenness and says, yeah, I think I can do something with this. I can take this ash heap, this rubble heap, and I can work in such a way that builds it up into something even more beautiful than what we started with. 
Our redeeming God has a mission. Now, in the story of Ezra, God has a mission to restore the city of David and its people. So physically and also as a society, right? Relationally, spiritually, all of the elements, all of this holistic, uh, the, the holistic vision of what it means to live the good life. All of that is in view when God says, I want to restore the city of David. And after five, or five years, no, 50 years of God's people sitting in a very disorienting city of Babylon, God, as he promised through the prophet Jeremiah, God launches the mission of redemption forward. God, God unfolds this renewal plan that he has for his people. And what he does to begin this is he initiates. We're told, chapter one, verse one, it points to the fact that God stirs up in the heart of men. That, that's what renewal begins with. It is God who is stirring. It's not us who comes with, to this idea and say, hey, wouldn't it be nice if this world is better? Any sort of ideation towards that is God stirring in our hearts, a, a vision forward. And God stirs up in the heart of King Cyrus to send the exiles back. God stirs up in the heart of, of leaders like Zerubbabel and later on in Ezra to return home and to give themselves to the work. God stirs up in the heart of other men and women to go home and give themselves to this project of rebuilding the ruins. God stirs up even in the people who, who stay behind in Babylon to give and contribute to this mission of renewing the city of God. In an ideal world, as we think about this as God's big renewal project, we'd like to think that a project like this has this up and to the right trajectory. That's just like, oh yeah, it's everything's smooth, oh boy, everything is sailing smoothly. Everything's just up and to the right, everything's going well, we're doing God's will, God's way, it's gonna be epic. Well, rarely does it happen like that. Rarely is this, when God is unfolding his redemption plan, is that, that there's always ground being gained. There's very rarely this, hey, we're gonna set out on this journey and there's happily ever, you just think about it. Can you imagine if you were to read your kids' bedtime stories and there was never a crux in the story, never a moment of opposition, never a moment of resistance, never a moment where, where you're wondering, oh, what's next? What's gonna happen here? Those stories would be boring. And God only tells great stories. And part of the story is, as God's people give them to God's mission, what they find is opposition, what they find is adversity, both internally and externally. They find themselves experiencing mission drag, They've got this vision of re rebuilding the ruins, but actually on the way of getting there, there's so much bogging them down. There's, there's resistance along the way that it, in some parts of the story, it derails them, if not slows them down. Now this is, this gives us um, a bit of an inclination of what it means or what, what we are to experience when we set out to live a life to follow Jesus. When you start to follow Jesus, when you make that resolve, when, when you experience the grace of God in your life, when you see what Jesus has done for you and you cannot help but respond in worship and obedience to Jesus, the misconception is that life will get easier. Now, there is a sense where when Jesus invites people to come and follow him, he says, come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Like that, that's, 
Jesus isn't gonna bog us down with extra stuff, but when we follow Jesus, we will encounter resistance. Temptation oftentimes feels stronger. The critics tend to get louder. These internal doubts that we may have subdued for a moment start to rise again. We experience this mission drag in our own life. Now, in the story of Ezra, there's, there's this mission drag that, that's, that happens both internally and externally. Um, the external mission drag that they experience as they go back to rebuild the temple to, 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 to build the dwelling place for God where he would be right there among his people is they encounter the neighboring countries, the neighboring tribes and nations being antagonistic towards their work. They try to shut them down. They're tattletaling. They call up the king. Eventually, a decree is offered from the king to kind of shut the work down. But there's this external thing that even though they know they're doing what God has called them to do, there are external forces that are trying to hold them back from fulfilling that mission. And eventually, the internal drag gets revealed as well. God's people towards the beginning of the story, get sidetracked from the, the primary mission of building a house for God to building their own homes. And what it takes to get them back on course is a prophet who is sent by God with his lips loaded with the word of God to provoke his people to walk in obedience to Yahweh, to do what God has called them to. Now, now this is one of the things that Bible reading does in our hearts. This is one of the things that preaching does in our lives. It, it offers a provocation. It, it pokes us. It nudges us. It, it asks this question of, are we doing what the Lord has called us to do? Are we following Jesus in every way of our life? When the Bible is read, when our hearts revere the word of God as they ought to, when the preaching of God's word is unleashed to the people of God, there is a conviction of sin. There is a path that is made available to us through repentance, grace to forgive and grace to sustain. Now, God's people, the whole story the whole story of this is, like I said, it's not an up and to the right. We see this sort of, this ebb and flow of the mission, this, this sort of continual thing. It's, it's a little bit herky-jerky here because when the people of God experience the word of God, when it comes to bear on their life, what they do, they actually repent. You see hearts that are softened, not hardened to the word of God, and they turn from their sin and walk with God. And because of this, in Ezra chapter six, we see phase one of this rebuilding project finally completed. After a little bit of veering, after a little bit of adversity, they finally complete the temple. Worship is restored. The, the place where, where the praises of God were meant to, be, to ring out, the place where sacrifices were, were meant to be offered for the forgiveness of sins to remind people that they can have relationship with God even though they are sinners and God is holy. The lamb had to be slain for them, the bull, the sacrifice, whatever it was. That was what the temple offered them. So worship is restored. The sacrifices, the festivals are, are all underway, but the rebuilding isn't done. There's more work to do. See, what Ezra shows us, the book of Ezra shows us 
that God's mission is bigger than just temple worship. God's mission is bigger than just getting people together one day a week to sing some songs. God's mission encompasses all of life. Every piece of life is meant to be worship unto the Lord, spiritually, physically, relationally, culturally, our vocation, how we, how we hobby, how we recreate, how we do all of life is meant to be an act of worship, how we eat, how we drink. From our homes to the church to the public square, all of life is meant to be worship. And all of worship is meant to be informed by the word of God. Now, this is where Ezra comes in. Ezra is a scribe. A scribe is essentially a lawyer, um, a lawyer of the word of God, a lawyer of the law of Moses. He's skilled at, at exegeting. He's skilled at teaching. And he is commanded to, by God, and also the, the Persian king sends him back, to go back to the land of Jerusalem and to bring reformation to teach people how to organize their lives around the word of God. And so here we see a godly man who's given this, this mission. He's given responsibility to see to the, the, the whole people, the whole congregation, moving with the mission of God, working with the grain. And so he comes to teach people the word of God that it informs all of life to build a godly culture, a godly society that the entire civilization, the whole city of Jerusalem would be rooted in the word of God, that Jerusalem would actually be a city on a hill. Just as Jesus speaks of on the Sermon on the Mount, that the church is meant to be a city on a hill, a light in the dark world, salt to a tasteless and bland society. God's mission is nothing short of rebuilding everything. All of it. Every inch of life. It's not comp uh, compartmentalized to Sunday or, or even just um, spiritual matters or matters of salvation. Scripture tells us there is no secular or sacred divide. We're told all of life is sacred. All of life is lived before the face of God, quorum Deo. Therefore, all of life is meant to be worship. And what Ezra comes to teach the people of Jerusalem is that the word of God is sufficient in teaching us how all of life is lived by faith. How all of life, what the obedience of faith looks like, how this plays out in the real world. Now, just a few months into Ezra's assignment, just a few months into this citywide reformation project, they experience a major hiccup. There, there is a major sin that is exposed. Now, this is where a lot of preachers cut the book of Ezra short and they don't want to dabble into Ezra chapter 9 and 10 because it's kind of weird, kind of confusing, especially to our modern ears. We read some of this and we're asking a lot of questions. We, we need some clarity. Well, here's what it is. We'll dive back in. We've, we've unpacked this the last couple of weeks, but we've got to touch on this again because it's a key piece of this story. 
What we see here, as Ezra sets out to reform the whole society, what's been exposed, this big sin, is that there has been intermarriage going on between God's people, who are meant to be a holy people, a people set apart for God, specifically that they only worship God, they only worship Yahweh, and they are uniting themselves in marriage to pagan, idol-worshiping women. Now, this is something that God has prohibited all the way back in the book of Exodus. You see it repeated a couple times through Deuteronomy. This is something, part of the law of Moses, part of that summed up here in God shaping and forming a society of, uh, of God's people according to the word of God. This is a piece of it. And this big sin has been revealed that they have been disobeying God in this regard. And it's not just the common people. It's not just your everyday congregants who are doing this. It's some of the leaders, some of the people who are responsible for leading the church, leading the people of God in worship have given themselves to these pagan wives. Now, the problem with this, this is not a matter of ethnicity. We, we've unpacked this the last couple of weeks. If you've got questions, maybe you can go back the last couple of weeks and sort of work through some of these things. It wasn't about ethnicity. It wasn't about appearance. What God was addressing was a worship problem. To have one party giving themselves to the worship of God and another party giving themselves to the worship of perhaps many gods and bringing them together would create a household that is divided. It, it, would, create, um, uh, it would create a culture that is not uh, unilaterally focused on serving the Lord. It, it's very distracted. Now, to allow the people who had intermarried like this to continue on in these relationships that God had prohibited from the beginning would undermine the mission of God in the city of Jerusalem. The idea of reforming a civilization, the idea of restoring worship as, as the people of God ought to would lose progress, the mission compromised, and what would happen eventually is they'd go right back to square one. They go right back in some way, shape, or form, returning to slavery like they did when they were exiled into Babylon. Now, what we see next is very controversial. What we see next, again, is hard for our modern ears and minds to, to, to reckon with, but it is, in fact, a demonstration of godly leadership. And godly leadership oftentimes is controversial. Because what Ezra does here as he's leading the people of God, as he's working towards the reformation of the city, rather than bending the word of God to fit the people, rather than twisting the word of God to get it to say what the people want it to say, which is something that is going on uh, very frequently here in modern evangelical world, Many mainstream denominations are veering from the word of God in many different places. And what's happening is the church is secularizing in order to fit in with the culture, in order to be a little bit more palatable for those who are outside of the church. Ezra didn't do that. Ezra did not. He refused to bend the word of God to fit God's people. Instead, what he does is he calls the people of God to conform to the word of God. Now this might seem, this might seem um, obscure to us. This, this might seem 
Like, why? Why do this, Ezra? And I think when we ask that question, it exposes uh, an underlying presupposition of what we think about the word of God. The word of God teaches us what beauty is. The word of God teaches us what goodness is. The word of God is true. And so when the word of God speaks to us, we ought to embrace it, hands wide open, to receive that which is good and beautiful and true, that which is meant to lead us towards flourishing, that which is meant to bring us into the good life. And that's what Ezra knows. That, that's, that's what makes Ezra a good and godly leader. He is leading God's people in this direction. And in doing so, he, he declares, he promotes the word of God as the ultimate standard, the ultimate authority, not man's opinion. Now, this is the key to Reformation. This is the key to seeing the church being renewed, to becoming more beautiful in Christ. It's the word of God and our submission to it, letting it work on us, letting our lives conform to it, not the word conform, or not us make the word of God conform to our lives. Now, when the people of God experience the word of God, they have this high regard for the word of God. In fact, in, in chapters nine and 10, multiple times it shows us that, that they're, they're trembling at the word of God. Like they have such a high regard for God and his words that when God speaks, it's like this heavy weight. They feel it. It's, it's not just anybody's opinion. It's not just like, hey, you know, God's saying, this might be a cool way for you to structure your lives. No, no, they receive it as, this is what's most true. This is a heavy weight. There is glory to these words. And because there's glory, there's weight to these words, we see an example of what true repentance looks like among God's people. First, there's conviction. Now, if you go back to other places, I mean, you go back to the story of Exodus, through Judges, um, there's many other places, First and Kings, where God speaks to his people, when God brings a word to his people, and instead of receiving it and letting the word do the work, there's a hardness of heart toward the word. There's a resistance to the word. It's one of the reasons why the, the author of Hebrews is, today, if you hear the word of the Lord, do not harden your hearts like your fathers did. Well, here we see an example of a soft heart, a heart that is soft and malleable according to the word of God, or, or the word of God can get its fingers on it and starts, starts moving and molding. First, we see conviction. When God speaks, when the word of God comes to bear upon the people, they don't just brush it off. They don't say, oh, that's just, that's just God's opinion, right? They, they don't try to rewrite the word of God to fit their wants and desires. The word of God cuts to their heart. Now we see this in the book of Acts too. When, when, the, when the apostle Peter gets up to preach the sermon at Pentecost and he's saying, hey, this Jesus who you crucified, this Jesus who you're responsible, whose blood is on your hands, he's the Messiah, he's the savior. And that, the word of God, that gospel message, what's it do? It cuts to their heart. It gets in there. There's conviction. Now, with conviction, the second thing you see is this godly grief, this sorrow. 
Now, in, in, in the book of Acts, you see this, what, what must we do to be saved? They, they have this question, what, what do we do? I feel this way, I feel the guilt, I feel the sin, I, I'm aware of it. And there is lament, there's brokenness, they feel the guilt. The same thing happens with Ezra. They're, they're lamenting. Ezra pulls out his beard. He's, he's tearing his clothes. He's covered in ash. He's, he's got all, and the people are joining him. The people, it's not just the leader who feels this. It's the whole congregation that sees this. They've got this grief, this sorrow for their sin. And Ezra goes before God as a representative and confesses their sin. He says, our sin reeks to the high heavens. This is in Ezra chapter nine. Our sin stinks. It has, it has infected us. It's plagued us. It has made us to be not who we are meant to be. And so he, he confesses their wrongdoing. We've broken your word. We've, we've tried to live life by our own rules. We've been outside God's will. Now, one of the things that happens when we experience this conviction of sin, we stop at confession. We just say, yeah, I, I, we admit it, I, I did sin, and before you know it, we're right back to where we were at in the beginning. Like the, the sin sort of reintroduces itself and it just keeps going and going. C- confession of sin is not the same thing as repentance of sin. Confession of sin is not enough. Jesus, when he comes on the scene in Mark's gospel, the first thing he says, his announcement is repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance involves conviction and godly grief and confession, but then repentance is the act of turning away from sin. If sin was making me go this way, I'm doing an about face and I'm going the other way. I'm going in the direction in which God's word tells me to go. Or in other words, repentance is realigning ourselves to the word of God. Every time we repent, every time we turn from sin, reformation is happening on an individual basis. You are being reformed by the word of God every time you come in on Sunday mornings and you, you with the church, confess your sins together. Now it happens individually, it also happens corporately. We as a church, we have collectively grieved God by our sin. Our church is not a perfect church. Our church has done things, we've said things, or we have not done things which we should have done that make us sinners collectively. And we come in on Sunday mornings and we repent and we turn. And in that moment, God is reforming this church. Now, reformation, that repentance isn't just meant to happen here on Sunday mornings, though it is a key piece of what worship is on Sunday mornings. It's meant to be something that we do every time the Spirit convicts us of our sin. Every opportunity that we have to repent. I invite you brothers and sisters, whether it's because the word of God is open before you, you're listening to something and God's spirit convicts you to it. You got a brother or sister who's sharing their life together. They're, They're maybe speaking into your life. Whenever you experience the conviction of the spirit, do not harden your heart, but give yourself to the work of repentance and experience the renewal, the refreshing and the reformation that God wants to bring to your life. And in that, we move from one degree of glory to the next. We are being conformed, not just to the word of God, not just to the, to the standards, not just to these arbitrary rules, but we are taking on the image of Christ, the beloved son of God. 
We are becoming more like him. Repentance leads to reformation. Now, in this scenario, there is both individual sin. Now, not not everybody in the nation of of Israel is guilty of, of this intermarriage sin. Not everybody is. But the whole congregation is responding as if it is their own sin. There is this corporate ownership. Now, in this case, what repentance looks like is to divorce their idol-worshiping spouses. Now, this, this puts us between a rock and a hard spot. I said this last week because we're told in Malachi 2 that God hates divorce, yet this is a marriage that God did not endorse. This is a marriage that, that is against God's will. Now, we cannot let our past sins justify and carry us on this path of continued sin. What has to happen is a separation, a parting of ways. And this is what this divorce is meant to show us, that there's actually a departing of ways where, we, where the people, the, the, those who are God worshipers, worshipers of Yahweh, put away their pagan and idol-worshiping spouses. We cannot let our past sin justify continuation of that same sin. Now, this this may seem harsh. This may seem abrupt or or maybe over the top. But one of the things that, that Ezra chapter 10 shows us is that this was not hasty. as the sins of the people are being made known, not, not only do they feel this weight of sin in their hearts, but actually um, there is this, it's, it's the middle of December and there's this torrential downpour that's coming. Like literally the, the clouds are spewing out and they feel this weight. And so as Ezra is standing there before them, say, we've got to deal with this sin. They say, listen, this is gonna take a little bit of time. It's going to take a little bit of time for us to sort all of this stuff out, to figure out what we do next. And in God's gracious timing, he gave a a time of three months for it to go household by household through all of the people of Israel to determine what the next steps are. Now, one of the things that this points to, just because it wasn't like this abrupt, this swift chopping off of of these people, We see God's patience at work in this. As as 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that God is patient and he grants us time to repent. Now, because the list of names is so short, I mean, in comparison, there's about 30, some scholars say there's somewhere between 30,000 to 45,000 men in Israel in this moment. And only 100 some names are mentioned here. Now, what this tells us is that there are some who, some, some pagan worshipers, some, some idol worshipers who turned from worshiping false gods and turned to the true and living God, Yahweh. That there were some people who repented of their idolatry and found the good life who found the law of liberty that opens us up to human flourishing, that gave themselves to worshiping the one true and living God. Now this in itself is outstanding. 
This testifies that God has grace for even those who are far, far, far away from him. Even those who are caught up in a lie of idol worship and doing things that are very vehemently displeasing towards God. He's got grace. He's got mercy. He's got forgiveness. And he's eager to graft those people in, but he does so on his terms. So you want to be, you want to be among my people? I have to be your God. One God. Now this is outstanding. Like heaven rejoicing over globs and globs of former idol worshipers coming in to worship the one true God. The mission in this regard is moving forward. God is renewing spiritually, socially, his people. He's taking from the ashes and making something beautiful. From people's rebellion, from people's sin and waywardness, he's making something that brings honor to him. This is the power of God's redeeming work. And while we can see that some did turn to God, some did repent from their, their idol worship, there were also some who did not. That they chose to hold on to their idols. Instead of putting their idols away and embracing God, being part of the covenant community, the community of promise, the husbands were told that they had to put their wives away. Now, verse 18 through 44, this list of men, it, it, could, be, it could be read as, as um, sort of a, um, a registry of those who disobeyed God and kind of were sort of to, to their shame in some ways. And I think maybe there is a, a piece of that. Like, it's like, it's revealing the people of God for what they are. They're sort of a, a wayward crew prone to wander, Lord, I feel that prone to leave the God I love. There, there's some of that that's continually going on amongst the people of God. But I think also this is, this passage where we see this long list of, of future baby names for all of the children of Sacred City. <laughs> Just kidding. It represents men who took God at his word. Men who love the word of God more than life itself. These are men who repented of their sin. They counted the cost of following God and they paid it. They paid the price. Now there were just over uh, about 100 men named. Some of them, like I said before, are leaders in Israel. And when we hear this, um, our our modern ears, it seems so weird that God would command his people to divorce those. And we think there has got to be another option. There's got to be a a workaround around this. In fact, if there's 30 to 45,000 men in Israel at this point, and only 100-ish are guilty of this, can't we just overlook this matter? Can't we just sort of like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll not do that again in the future and scoot along the way. No, no, no. If we're thinking that way, we are not reasoning in the way that God reasons. We address this as, as we talked about the festival of um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Talk about the Passover feast. Talked about this later on in 1 Corinthians, a little leaven ruins the whole lump. 
God's people were called to be a holy people, a people fully devoted to God. And when one little piece of that is compromised, the whole thing can be infected. And when God's people are defiled, the mission of God is sabotaged. To live into the mission of renewal is to live in obedience to God. There is no other way around it. There is no renewal without repentance and faith. There is no renewal without giving ourselves to the word of God. And we must do it no matter what the cost. Because following Jesus is always a bargain compared to the steep price of continuing in your sin and rebellion. Sin will bleed you dry. Sin will run you over. It will destroy. It only has one aim, to destroy you, to bring your life and to keep your life in an ash heap, in the rubble. But Jesus has come to show us the way of life, to bring us back to human flourishing, to give us a deep and secure joy. But he tells us the way that we move toward that is a narrow gate and a narrow path. It is a way of obedience to him. Now, what we see here, all of these names, it's a company of men who are walking the narrow road. Now, to end the book of Ezra with a list of divorcees seems very strange. It seems, well, it's, it's kind of anticlimactic. There's no happy ending here. There's no resolution we don't hear this, this anthem of mission accomplished, we've done it, hooray. And for us as the reader, it leaves us with this longing. We want to see the city rebuilt. We want to see the society uh, behaving and living and flourishing as God has intended to be, but we don't see that. At least not yet. One of the helpful things that Ezra does to us is shows us the ebb and flow of renewal. It's not this linear up and to the right, gonna go that way, up and to the right thing. It's more like waves lapping up on the beach. It comes in cycles. This is sort of coming in, we're obeying the Lord, we're doing as the Lord commands, and then, well, we've got fickle hearts and we sort of drift away. And then what, repentance happens and then we come back. And little by little, renewal happens inch by inch throughout the entire cosmos. This is the ebb and flow of renewal. And each time this cycle of repentance and faith occurs, we see the kingdom of heaven advancing a little bit at a time. This is how God advances his mission. Little by little, to the faithfulness of God's people. Can you imagine like God, God convic- convicts us at a rate in which we can absorb. Can you imagine if God just plopped you down one day and said, here's the list of all your sins that you need to deal with today. Do you know how crushing that would be? It's in God's grace that little by little, he convicts us of sins and invites us into repentance and faith that we may lay hold of the good life. It's as the people of God hold fast to the word of God that we see renewal take place. And so when we see this list of names here at the end of Ezra chapter 10, this should encourage us. 
That there, are, there is a heritage of men and women who went before us that gave themselves to the word of God no matter what the cost. They, they gave themselves to the mission of God, watching the trajectory of renewal move the church forward. And where we stand today, we've come a long way from where they've come, yet there's still more to come. And that's still the case for the church today. The kingdom of heaven is unfolding right before us. The way that the church is renewed, the way the city is renewed, is through repentance and faith and conforming to the word of God. Now, in this story, Ezra is the main guy who leads and guides God's people in this mission. But for the church, we have a true and better Ezra. We have the man, Jesus Christ. Now, Ezra, he knew the word of God. Jesus doesn't just know the word of God. He is the word of God. He is the word made flesh dwelling here. And when Jesus lives his life, it's a perfect life. It's a life that's completely pleasing to God. He's not just showing us the example, not just being an example, not just saying, hey, do what I do, follow my lead. He does do that. But he goes one step even further. He's not just the example who shows us, who doesn't just lay out the way, but he lays down his life. Because we, as a fickle bunch, as people who get so enmeshed and intertwined with sin, Jesus is working at renewing our own hearts first. He, he, he exposes the sin and then he deals with our sin. We don't have to answer for it. It's not our blood that was shed. It was his blood that shed for us. And by the shedding of blood, our sins are forgiven. He takes on that steep price of disobedience upon himself that we might receive everlasting life, that we might walk in his ways to regard his word and enjoy the good life that's been laid before us. And you know what happens next? Look, we see these names of men and women, these men here, like individuals who have, their sin has been found out. They've dealt with their sin. They've repented of their sin. They've turned and realigned their lives to God. And now what? God is going to use them again. There's another wave. Nehemiah is another wave of renewal that's going to happen. And in the same way, God takes us he takes repentant sinners like you and me and he shoots us back out so that we could give ourselves to the mission of renewal. Now this is, if you, if you go to the back of your Bible in Revelation chapter 21, 22, Jesus speaks to this whole thing. Like th this is a theme that, that sort of, it's one of the big narrative arcs that goes over all of scripture. This fact that God is renewing the cosmos. He's renewing his people and renewing the world. And Jesus says, as he's standing there, seated on the throne, he's seated on the throne, not standing, he's seated on the throne. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus, right now, as he's seated in heaven, he's already done the redeeming work of, of cleansing us of our sins, of, of bringing us back into relationship with God, of showing us what it looks like to live a life of obedience to God. He says, I'm at work. I am making all things new. And the way God's mission moves forward is through repentant sinners who take God at his word. We right now, church, we are on the mission of renewal. 
And as we listen to God's word, as we align ourselves to God's word, the mission moves forward. Now, when we stop listening, when we stop obeying God, when we don't have the word of God propped up in its proper place, the renewal project grinds to a halt. We short circuit the work that God is wanting to do. But Jesus' mission, take heart, church, will never be totally thwarted. Jesus, what he starts, he promises he will finish. What we see here at the end of Revelation 21 is a new Jerusalem. See, the city that God's people were hoping to build, the city of, of, of total wholeness, of, of shalom, of peace, of joy, of love, the city that people that we're all longing for is actually delivered when Jesus returns and once and for all makes all things new. When Jesus sets up his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, completely and totally and finally. This is the confidence that we have in Philippians 1.6. What Jesus starts, he brings to completion. It might as well be done. And for us as a church, we stand here in the already and not yet. The kingdom of heaven is already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. What we see is renewal is on the horizon. Jesus is making all things new. And when we come to the new Jerusalem, when Jesus brings us into the kingdom, he shows before us a city. And in this city, there's no temple. Unlike the Jerusalem that they're working to rebuild in the time of Ezra, there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. Why? There's no need for it. It says this, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is a lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor nothing or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, Jesus has another list of names, a list of names that are, are names that are written into the Lamb's book of life. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, that have repented, but then also walk a lifestyle of repentance, a, a lockstep with Jesus, those are the ones who are brought into the kingdom of heaven. And the way that we're purified, the way, the way that sinners like us can get in is because our uncleanliness is dealt with once and for all at the cross. That's what's coming down the pike. That's what awaits the church of God. The, the, heaven, the happily ever after that we're hoping for at the end of Ezra, well, it's in, at the end of Revelation. And in the meantime, we don't just stand as a church twiddling our thumbs. God has work for us to do. God has a mission of renewing the city little by little, renewing our homes little by little, renewing our hearts little by little so that God would be glorified 
that he would use sinners, repentant sinners, mightily for his purposes. Praise God for his redeeming work. Praise Jesus for living the perfect life that we could not live, dying the death that we deserve so that we could get the joy, the pleasure of entering into his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that while we are a wayward and unfaithful crew, your faithfulness never wavers. Your love for us is steadfast. Your care for us is thorough. There's no place that we can't, can't go where you aren't already there. And Lord, we want to please you. We, we want to enter into the joy of our salvation in a way that gives us a buoyancy that no matter what comes at us, no matter what, what internal or external mission, uh, mission bogging down or whatever goes on in our life, whatever comes our way, whatever tries to press us down, we just pop back right up. We pray that you would make this church a people who are forever committed to renewal according to the word of God, that our hearts would be aligned to you, that our lives would take the shape of Christ, not just as our example, but those who have received his mercy day in and day out. As we come to the Lord's table today, would you remind us anew of this grace that you have for us, the fact that you are making all things new, that by the blood of the lamb, that all things are being reconciled back to you that we are yours, that we are your people. Help us to live as such. Empower us by a supernatural means through this meal that the spirit of Jesus here that is at this meal with us would sort of give us a spiritual strength. As we, as we eat the bread and drink the wine, would there be something that, that supernaturally happens within us that we can give ourselves to this mission, that we would regard the word of God so highly that it would influence every aspect of our life. Jesus, we acknowledge that any sacrifice that we make here on this side of eternity will be worth it. We thank you that you pay the ultimate price. We love you, we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.